Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Lori and I spent the last week in Colorado. Uh, I was teaching at a gap year program of Worldview Academy called Worldview at the Abbey. It's called Worldview at the Abbey because it takes place at this old Benedictine monastery in uh, Canyon City, Colorado, uh, covered in a blanket of snow this time. And I got to do something I love to do, which is work with uh, young students. I say young, they're I guess, uh, high school graduates, so freshman year of college age students. Uh, I got to work with them on writing short stories. Now, it's not a creative writing program, but everybody who goes through the program has to do creative things, has to work on some kind of fiction in order to learn how to do that. Uh, Some of them enjoy it. Some of them think it's very painful. It's like pulling teeth because they're just not interested or or that way oriented. It may seem a little unfair. You wouldn't make uh, everyone who shows up for school uh, play uh, a violin concerto or something like that. But the reality is that, that all of us, if we've grown up in the educational system, have had instilled in us the kind of tools and talents it takes to do this work. We just haven't done it. And so this gives the students an opportunity to tell a story, to, to focus on, on the craft of it, so that they're not just reading literature, they're also creating it. The reason I love to do this, though, is it's, it's a lot of fun to swoop in as young people are expressing themselves and cut them down to size. <laughs> to be the critic, the one who's, who's the expert, who gets to tell you what's wrong with the, the, the uh, passionate expression of your heart. And so that's what I was doing all week long. And I noticed a trend in all of these stories that really fascinated me. All of these stories would end basically the same way. Uh, after the action was resolved, the, the story would keep going and tell you everything that happened after that, how everything worked out, uh, answer all of your questions. Everyone lives happily ever after. This was especially true if the students had made the mistake of trying to write a religious story, a story where someone comes to faith. Everybody in these stories who accepted Christ as their Savior had all their problems solved as a result. Uh, in a favorite example, there was a guy who struggled for eight years, couldn't find a job. Everything was going badly in his life. Then he got saved, and the phone started ringing. The jobs came in. It was all wonderful. And, of course, I was just uh, really angry about this, and so I was telling people, cut. You've got to cut this. You've got to get rid of this. It's, it's not the way you do this. And the example that I would point to is James Joyce. James Joyce, the, the famous Irish writer, especially you would see this in his collection of short stories, Dubliners, really perfected this idea of how to end the story with this internal resolution of the conflict. He called it an epiphany. The character in the story comes to a realization, and that shift in perspective is the payoff that allows you to wrap up the story. And once that happens, you don't need to keep going. You don't need to tell us anything else. Um, Probably if... uh, you're not a fan of James Joyce. There's at least one story of his you will have read because it's the one they tend to assign, which is Araby about the boy who goes to the, the, the fair and doesn't have enough money because he had to pay the entrance fee. He couldn't buy what he wanted, and, and he reflects on it all, and what he thought was beautiful is really kind of tawdry. And, uh, and this little slight 
movement, internal movement, just a shift in perspective is the payoff for the story. You could talk about what happened when he went home. You could go on and on about what happened when he grew up and that sort of thing, but you don't need to. Just ending on that moment brings it all together and gives it a kind of literary power. Maybe that's true artistically, but I think there was a reason why the students felt the need to keep the story going, and it had to do with realism, because that's not the way life works. It is the way a story works. It's the way uh, uh, art works, but life is a little more prosaic than that. The story has a tendency to keep going. Right? Nobody's story in real life ends with an epiphany. You have a realization, and then you wake up the next morning, and you have to keep going. The story of a marriage is the same way. So many marriages in literature end at the altar. right? You, you get married, and that resolves the conflict. But if you're married, you know it doesn't resolve the conflict. It begins the conflict. right? The story of the marriage begins at the altar. That's true for the longings that bring us to Christ as well. Nobody's life in Christ ends with conversion. Nobody gets saved, and that's all there is to say about it. The story keeps going. And as far as living goes, it may be that what matters most is what happens after the epiphany, what happens afterwards. In Acts 241, after narrating Peter's sermon, Luke says 3,000 souls were added to the church at that time. And if your Bible is like mine, there's a section break there. So it actually ends on verse 41, if you can see that. 3,000 souls, that's the end of the section. That's the payoff, that's the triumph. Peter preaches a sermon and it's so good that 3,000 people are converted. And then the music swells, and we fade to black, and that's the end of the story. Only it's not. It's not. What happens then? That's a real question, an important question, a question that Luke addresses. 3,000 souls are added in verse 41. But what matters most may be what Luke tells us in verse 42, what they did afterwards. You can imagine those 3,000, those new converts, they've heard the gospel proclaimed. Peter has built on top of the knowledge they already possessed, that covenantal knowledge they possessed by virtue of of their Old Testament upbringing and had brought them to Christ. They have been baptized. They have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now what? Now what? The story stone ends. They're not just statistics on the church rolls. Now they have to live. Now they actually have to live. And here Luke tells us, he answers the question, like, what follows conversion? What follows conversion is devotion. What follows conversion is devotion. They devoted themselves, he says, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. What he's describing here is an ongoing state of affairs. So when he says they devoted themselves, he's not talking about a one-time decision. Like after this church service, they all got together and said, you know what, from now on, I'm going to devote myself to the apostles' teaching. In fact, narratively speaking, what's happened is that the time uh, has shifted. Where Luke has been narrating events in more or less real time, 
giving you Peter's words and people's immediate reaction. Now he's pulling back. Now he's compressing time and telling you uh, the way people lived after that, what they were focused on after that. Their lives after that consisted in a state of devotion. They continued steadfastly in this devotion to these four things that Luke mentions. This is a little bit like if you're watching a boxing movie. You know, some events are narrated in real time, but some things you have to compress, like training. It'd be super boring if we had to go to every sparring session, if we had to watch the whole time that the hero is on the speed bag. That would not be interesting. So they cut, and they cut, and they give you just the highlights, the montage, and the music cranks up, and you get a sense that over the passage of time, certain things are happening again and again. Like a pattern is emerging. There are certain emphases that are followed through on over time. And because of that period of time, that continuing devotion to those practices, a transformation takes place. A training occurs that allows the action that follows. So you might think of this as Luke's training montage. 3,000 souls are added to the church, and then they go to the gym. And they start working out. They start equipping, preparing themselves for what is to come. And they devote themselves to these practices again and again, repetitively. So Acts 2 tells us how they came to faith and gives us the argument that was used to bring them to faith. But it also says how they lived afterwards. And it's how they lived that I want us to think about, because I think they have a question that we often have as well. I believe, now what? I believe, so how am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to do? And in describing what they did, Luke answers that question for us as well. He shows us the direction our own devotion should take. Continuous devotion is something that we struggle with because we would prefer uh, quick fixes, We would prefer immediate solutions. Quick fixes are appealing precisely because they do not require devotion. Because you get what you want solved immediately. Your problems go away and you can move on with your life without having to think about it, without having to focus on it. There's a huge market for quick fixes, for magic pills for get-rich-quick schemes, and so on. All of these things have a certain appeal because we want to fulfill our longings without work, because we want to fulfill our longings without sacrifice. You see it happening in the world around you, in, in, in business and health, but we see it in the church as well, don't we? Uh, fire insurance salvation is a great example of of a quick fix. Oh, I don't want to go to hell. I guess I should pray the prayer, and then I'll be right with God, and I can move on with my life and not worry about such things anymore. That's an example of this similar kind of immaturity in the realm of Christianity, looking for a quick fix instead of, or as a substitute for, Continuous devotion. But part of maturity in faith and in life involves giving up on quick fixes in favor of continuous devotion. 
And the greatest benefits that you will derive from education, from work, from marriage, only come over time. Those benefits only come as the result of a long obedience in the same direction. The question is, in what direction? If devotion is required, devotion to what? If I have to apply myself to something, what do I have to apply myself to? Continuous devotion implies a couple of things. It implies that you know what your problem is. It implies that you know which devotion will solve it, which devotion to embrace. Luke tells us what to embrace. He tells us what to devote ourselves to. And if you think about his answer, it gives some insight into what the problem actually is that needs to be solved. So if we look at the way that Luke points devotion, points out to us, this is the path, walk this path, we will gain more insight into what our problem really is because sometimes your problem isn't what you think it is. Sometimes your struggle isn't the struggle you think you're struggling with. We recognize true devotion, in other words, we'll understand what the problem really is. So there's a need for devotion, but but it matters what the content of that devotion is. It matters what we are devoted to, and Luke gives us four marks, four devotions, four things to be continuously committed to over time. The teaching of the apostles, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. In the English translation, this is a little bit wonky because of all of those these, those definite articles. We wouldn't usually talk this way. The way you would usually say this is is more like, you know, devote yourself to what the apostles have taught. Uh, Devote yourself to praying, things like that. But the prayers... That definite article suggests something a little more specific than just the general idea of praying or the general idea of fellowship. This is the fellowship that you're meant to devote yourself to. So there's something more specific, something more uh, particular, a specific doctrine, a particular community, a specific meal, a particular kind of prayer. If you take these four things together, Calvin says... You see four marks whereby the true and natural face of the church may be judged. Translate that into English. If you uh, see these things, you see these four things happening, you know you're in the church. If you don't, maybe that's not where you are. You go back to the, the boxing montage. How do you know you're at the gym? You have the speed bags, the, the heavy bags. You have people punching each other. My knowledge of boxing is pretty thin, so I can't go much further. But you get the idea. You walk into that place, and and by what you see going on, the practices, the smells, all of that conveys to you, I'm at the gym. I'm at the place where you train to do boxing. In a similar way, when you see devotion to the teaching of the apostles, when you see devotion to the fellowship, devotion to the breaking of bread, devotion to the prayers. You see those things happening, you know I'm in the church. I'm in the church because those are the things that happen. These are the things the church does. These are its characteristic marks. 
So the teaching of the apostles is the first thing that Luke mentions. The teaching of the apostles, uh, the doctrine, the didache, literally, the, the doctrine that the apostles passed on. Devotion to that doctrine is the first mark of the church. I'll be the first one to tell you that the Christian faith is more than just a belief system, but it is never less than a belief system. The beliefs of the church, the doctrine, the teaching transmitted through the apostles, preserved for us in Scripture, is at the core of our continuous devotion. Now, before the canon of Scripture was closed, when these books were still being written and circulated, before literacy was widespread in the world, before access to the Bible was common or even likely, before all of that, if you wanted to be sure that you were devoted to the teaching of the apostles, you had to look to the churches the apostles had founded, to look to the churches that proclaimed the same teaching that the apostles had proclaimed, which is why in the early church, when you read the the first and second century apologists, there's a huge emphasis on the apostolic tradition, on the teachings of the apostles being devoted to those teachings. What mattered to them was not um, like lineal descent. They weren't saying we've got to be faithful to whoever the guy is that was laid hands on by the guy who was laid hands on by the guy who was laid hands on who was an apostle. And whatever that guy says, we've got to believe it regardless of what it is, regardless of how different it is from what the apostles said. You've got to believe it because, I mean, he's the successor to the apostles. That's not the point. The, the succession wasn't the, the individuals. It was the doctrine, continuous devotion to the teaching of the apostles. We have it much easier than they did, thanks to the, the canon of Scripture Thanks to the miracle of, of printing, we have that teaching here for us. We don't have to scrounge around for it, but we do need to be continuously devoted to it. We do need to be committed to what it teaches, to devote ourselves to the written word. Now, devotion, by definition, by definition means more than a, a minimal commitment, right? To be devoted to something is more than to have a sort of nominal commitment to it. It it suggests zeal. Zeal to know the word. Like to actually know what the apostles taught. That it matters to have that knowledge. Zeal for the true teaching in its fullness. Which is hard for us. Because we tend to be looking for kind of the bare minimum. We're always looking for the distilled version. Like, like, what are the things I absolutely have to believe? What are the non-negotiables? What are the, the, the basics? Like, like, give me three bullet points that I absolutely have to believe, stuff the apostles taught that I totally can't reject. Give me that to cling to. That's not devotion. Devotion is, is a commitment of the whole person to the whole object of devotion. Right? A commitment to all of the teaching that was handed down. That's devotion. And that's what they were like. They devoted themselves. They were steadfastly continuing in the teaching of the apostles. And also in the fellowship. 
not just the doctrine, but the community that that doctrine was creating, the fellowship, the koinonia in the Greek, a term even if you've never studied Greek, you may have heard before, a community in union with one another, people in union together, in union with Christ and with one another, bound by love, bound by a sense of mutual care, the need to share one another's burdens, to be brothers and sisters. Union with Christ brings us into fellowship with one another, which is why the church is called the communion of saints. Communion of saints. Devotion to fellowship means intentional participation, an ongoing commitment to the body, showing up, sharing burdens, serving one another. That's what it means to be devoted to the fellowship, to be a part of that body. The breaking of bread. Commentators will go back and forth on on what Luke means by this. Some of them will define it more broadly as hospitality, that they devoted themselves to showing hospitality. I think they certainly did do that. But the use of that definite article and the way that, that Luke is speaking here, I think suggests something more than that. The breaking of bread is equated with the Lord's Supper, with the sacrament that we celebrate every week out of our devotion to the breaking of bread. Now, you can think of these four things as two things, one of which has a subset of two. So there's the teaching of the apostles and the fellowship. And then the fellowship is further broken down into the breaking of bread and the prayers. So you can understand the breaking of bread and the prayers as sort of fleshing out the idea of what happens within the fellowship. Fellowship certainly entails hospitality. You can't have fellowship without eating together, but Luke has in mind the highest expression of that hospitality, that communion that happens in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Well, devotion to the supper, devotion to this sacrament means attending to the ordinary means of grace, like paying attention, caring about your participation in these things. It means having to examine yourself, as we did earlier in our service when we confessed our sins. To be devoted to the breaking of bread means being able to come with a clear conscience to the table, the necessity to repent of our sins, to turn away from them. That's all part of that devotion. It means living at peace with one another, intentionally, It means putting conflict to death between us so that we can come together united to the table, not nurturing bitterness and grudges. It means maintaining a clear conscience. To be devoted to the breaking of bread entails all of those things. If we don't examine ourselves, if we don't distance ourselves from our sin, we don't strive to maintain a clear conscience, how devoted can we be? to the breaking of bread, or the prayers. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing, by which he means, of course, not pray without taking any breaks, pray constantly 24-7, but again, he's speaking the same way that Luke is of a continuous devotion, like have a continuous discipline of prayer, a continually recurring practice of prayer, Because in prayer, we voice the longings that fill our hearts. 
In prayer, we put into words things we often don't think about or reflect on. We express our needs. We hold them up to God in hope of fulfillment, in hope of satisfaction, in hope that he will give us the desires of our hearts. When he says the prayers, Luke has in mind specifically public prayer, the prayer of the community together at worship, corporate prayer. So the emphasis is still on fellowship. It's on community, on union. They devoted themselves to praying together publicly, which is another way of saying they devoted themselves to what we're doing now, to worship. The prayers, the breaking of bread, the teaching of the apostles, the fellowship, these are all characteristics. These are ways of describing the activity that we find ourselves in the midst of at this very moment. They devoted themselves to worship. They recognized that the kingdom of God is a kingdom devoted to worship. The sum of devotion is the act of worship. So many of us make a profession of faith and and own that faith and yet don't know how to live it. I believe now what? And so we search for answers. How to be better Christians? How to be more advanced Christians? If you're curious, there are all sorts of seminars and training available to equip you to be a much better Christian than everyone else around you. Much better skills, uh, better arguments and apologetics, all that sort of thing. If you don't know how to pray, there are plenty of training programs that can turn you into a prayer warrior. But there's also God's plan to grow you in those things. And it's not a seminar. It's not a self-help program. It's not a book, no no matter how well written. It's this. It is the practice of worship. It is a continuous devotion to these four things over time that grows us. In other words, the answer is right in front of us, hidden in plain sight. And that's the reason so often we don't see it. Because it doesn't seem like the answer to the question, what do I do now, could be the thing I'm already doing. It doesn't seem as if the solution to what seems an insurmountable problem could be something so humble and simple and seemingly limited and inadequate. How could it be that this is how we train, how we equip ourselves, that this is what we're meant to be devoted to continuously over time? And yet there it is. There it is, worship. Doctrine, fellowship, sacrament, prayer, devotion to these ordinary means of grace over time is what makes us who we were meant to be in Christ. It may not seem like much, but like water channeling through rock, it has a power that is unanticipated. The power of worship, the power of devotion to the teaching of Scripture, devotion to the body of Christ, devotion to the sacraments that have been given to us as signs and seals of the covenant of grace, devotion to prayer, that means of grace by which we pour out our inadequacy before a God who can give us all things. Those have the power to shape us like nothing else does. These are the things the Spirit uses to repair us, to restore us, to build us up. 
You may not realize this, but what happens in capsule form in a worship service is a pattern for life. Worship is a pattern for life. Everything that you need is here. To hear the word proclaimed, to hear the doctrine of Scripture, to be able to study Scripture is essential to life. To confess our sins, to confess our faith, to receive pardon for sin, assurance of God's love, to praise him, to go to him in prayer, to be in fellowship with others, to commune with our like-minded believers, our brothers and sisters, and with Christ himself. All of these things are, are, are necessary to life. And what we do here is the pattern for it. It's the schoolroom, if you will, where you learn how to live a life of grace. Now, this pattern for life that, that Luke lays out reveals what the problem must be. Now, when you think about the gospel and what problem the gospel solves, usually you construct it something like this. The problem is I'm going to go to hell, and I don't want to do that, so I need Jesus to take away my sin so that I can avoid that fiery outcome. Salvation from punishment, in other words, which is good as far as it goes, just doesn't go far enough because that only deals with a consequence. That only deals with a consequence of sin. It doesn't actually deal with the problem. The problem is that we're broken. Whether we're punished for that brokenness or not is one thing, but restoring that brokenness, bringing wholeness where sin has brought shattering, that's the problem. The gospel does more than deliver you from the consequences of your brokenness. It makes you whole again. It heals you. It restores you. Our humanity has been shattered. We are not what we were made to be. We see it in the world around us, that because of sin, things happen in this world that are fundamentally unjust. They're wrong. They're immoral. It shouldn't be this way. And yet, as far as we know, it always has been throughout all recorded history. And yet somehow we still revolt against it as if there's something wrong with the way things are. But the way things are isn't how they ought to be. If you see that in the world, you certainly see it in yourself. Even the best of us can look within and see, I'm not what I ought to be. I've done things I never should have done, things I regret and don't understand why I ever would have done that. And yet I also can't assure myself that I won't do it again. We're not what we're meant to be. When they were in exile in Babylon, the people of God, surrounded by the beauty of that ancient city, its historic gardens, the wonder of the world, with so much to drink in, in that great ancient culture, instead of their eyes being filled with wonder, they were filled with tears. They sang songs of lament, melancholy songs about lost Jerusalem, which to look at perhaps had never been as glorious as the place of their captivity. But in their minds, in their memory, it was the greatest city in the world. And they sang for the restoration of what was lost. In Psalm 137, that, that great and terrible imprecatory psalm, they sing that if they ever forget Jerusalem 
You know, let, let the hand that plays the music forget its cunning. Like, let all my skill depart from me. If I forget what was lost, if I don't keep looking back to what was lost, if I'm seduced by the beauty around me, such as it is, if I forget the real beauty that I was intended for. All of us, all of us human beings ache with longing. All of us are hurt by the destruction, by the loss, by that sense of exile. But we also long toward something more. We long toward a beauty, a hope, a fulfillment, a wholeness that nothing in history gives us any right to believe in. And yet we long for it deep within. We pray, as St. Augustine did centuries ago, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That brokenness generates a longing for restoration. And that's the problem that this continuous devotion is meant to address. These are the means by which the Spirit restores our broken humanity. Now here at Grace, when we say as a church that we're a church that longs for more grace and more depth and more community, we're making a commitment. We're devoting ourselves continuously to the four things that Luke mentions. We are devoting ourselves by those words to the teaching of the apostles, devoting ourselves to the fellowship, to the community, devoting ourselves to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. We're saying that as a community, we will not neglect these things. That's our collective decision. But you can't make a collective decision out of anything but individual decisions. There is no collective without the individual. There is no collective devotion without individual devotion. There's no point being part of a church that is so devoted if you're not part of it if you're not part of it. We know better than to take a fire insurance approach to salvation. But do we really? Do we really? Do we tell ourselves that just being part of the right kind of church is enough? If we just get that right, we don't make the mistake of choosing the wrong kind. I'm not at one of those churches that doesn't believe in the Bible. I'm not in one of those churches that, that has neglected the sacraments. I'm in a church that's devoted to those things, and that's enough. I need not worry. That is settled, we tell ourselves. But Luke says it's not enough. It's not enough. If on the day of Pentecost they just found that a church that had the right kind of mission statement and valued the right things collectively, but no one was part of it, committed to it, being shaped by it, it wouldn't have mattered at all. You can belong to the gym. You can have a membership. You can pay your dues regularly, and you can still look like this. It's been done. I've proven it myself. It's not belonging. It's not paying your dues that makes the difference. It's continuous devotion. You're not a character in a James Joyce story. Your life doesn't end with an epiphany or a realization or a decision. It goes on. You have to live. You need more than a momentary epiphany. You need a full life, a life of devotion, a life of worship 
You need Christ, but not just for a moment. You need him for every moment. And every moment after that, continuously. You need to be united to him and to his body to restore your humanity. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.